Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Hot Seat Podcast. I am you, uh, your host, Scott Henderson, a.k.a. Scotty Hendo on the interwebs. And today's show is entitled, entitled Talk Data to Me. Uh, some say data is the new oil, and it's an interesting metaphor. Is oil provides fuel, it pollutes, wars are fought over it, wars are fought with it. So does that mean data will do all those things too? So here at TechSquare, we're surrounded by people creating the future of technology. So what if we found ways for you to explore with these great minds the role data is playing in shaping the future? From now through April, we're exploring these deep intersections between data and our society through a variety of events. And today, we've assembled uh, 12 organizations from startups to research labs to, to corporate innovation centers to participate in what we call show and tell. It's uh, one part science fair and one part home computer homebrew club. So I wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been sharing their experiments on the floor. We've had Honeywell and ThyssenKrupp, Decision IQ, Georgia Tech Data Visualization Lab, Converge, Panasonic Automotive, PrivOps, AT&T Foundry, Southern Company, and Siemens. Uh, all have been uh, out there and they will be after we're done with this stage presentation. You can go back and talk to them as well. All this connected awesomeness is made possible by our good friends and partners at Honeywell and Georgia Centers of Innovations. So thank you for your leadership as the presenting sponsors of the Show and Tell series. Earlier this week, we surveyed everyone who registered for today's Show and Tell, asking them, how will the advancement of data impact your field? And here's a quick sampling of what you guys said. User experience design will become a more rigorous discipline. Intuition alone will not be enough. That was a J who said that. It, generates, uh, it will generate new revenue streams and empower people to make better decisions. Mel C. Henderson, she said that from NGA Human Resources. Uh, it will identify unnoticed opportunities for new products and product improvement. Josh Taylor, UPS. Data is part of the nucleus for assisting us, uh, use, uh, for assisting use, uh, excuse me, assisting us with advancing all areas of sustainable urban agriculture. That's Ray Williams. Shared that. Data maturity will enable efficiencies and quality improvements using AI and robotics, Greg Smith. Um, and then real-time consumer data will determine how connected automated vehicle services are offered. Nathaniel Hordum, who's been a previous guest of our podcast. And user insights will uh, help us build digital products and prioritize features. That's Shub Singh, Singhi said that. So with that, let's get into the fast-forward talk section of the show, which are brought to you by the Georgia Center of Innovation for Information Technology. Uh, we've been building up the anticipation, and I know you probably are pretty excited for this, and let's not wait anymore. All right, can we get, get, get into it? Am I, all right, you ready for this? Jason, you good? All right. So this is when we ask three experts to each step forward to uh, up here to the stage and uh, boldly predict how the technologies, uh, these technologies are going to shape our lives in the next five years. And then we'll have a roundtable, and then we'll have some Q&A. So let's get started with Dr. Raul Basole. Uh, he's got quite the portfolio experience, including starting his own research and consulting firm, serving as the director of R&D for a leading mobile software firm, editor-in-chief for a trade journal, in the and he's in the world of academia now. Uh, he's an associate professor at Georgia Tech School of Intera uh, Interactive Computing, the director of the Tenenbaum Institute, and a faculty member in the GVU Center. Is there nothing that you don't do? There's a lot of stuff that you got there. And he's also the visitor of sc visiting scholar and fellow in the Darden School of Business at Stanford University. Uh, his research and teaching focuses on computational enterprise science, data visualization, and strategic decision support. Uh, there's a lot more I can say, but all I can say is I think he's ready to give his fast-forward talk. So give it up for Raul, and he's going to talk about what he thinks. Okay, thanks, Scott, and thank you, everyone, for being here. It's really exciting to represent Georgia Tech and the Georgia Tech Visualization Lab. Uh, my name is Rahul Basole. I'm one of the three main faculty members in, in the visualization area. Uh, we do all kinds of stuff with visualization, and it ranges from 
how do you actually uh, communicate complex data sets to all the way to making sense and predicting about the future. So what I'll be talking to you about today is some of the work that we've been doing in our lab and how I'm thinking as well about the future of visualization and analytics combined. So uh, Scott mentioned data is the new oil. I'm not sure that I really buy all of this, that it is the new oil. But it is definitely a very valuable resource and we can do a lot of things with it. Um, what I like about it is that data comes in many, many different forms and so we have to think about how to handle all kinds of different data sets. So ranging from structured data to unstructured data. Oftentimes we like to have everything in the table as clean as possible but we have to do a lot of processing of that data and oftentimes clean data in a table, we miss a lot of context that actually uh, matters. Unstructured data in that sense provides a lot of that context and we have to combine that together. So in the work that I see in moving in the future is not just to think about structured data but very much about unstructured data and whether that's images, whether that's videos and so on. And the things that we want to do and if you see this little icon that I have on my slides, it's this toolbox. All of us use data and it's a lot of different data sources but we all use different tools to make sense of the data. And what we want to do is describe systems, we want to predict systems and ideally and this is what I'll be talking about what I think will happen in the next three to five years is we want to understand how we can help prescribe next things, strategy and, and so on. So the combination of visualization, analytics and AI is going to be really the sweet spot where we are headed. Uh, oftentimes we use visualizations for hypothesis generation, right? We want to make sense of the data, maybe communicate very complex things. We want to discover things as well, maybe tell stories. That's what visualization is used for. But really the goal is how do we support decision making? How do we create uh, automated insights and how do we actually drive decision making? And I'll give you two examples that we've done uh, in the work that I think is really going to lead forward. So one is we looked at how uh, startups and particularly the uh, startups that provide APIs are being funded. And we did this work based on prior work of understanding the API ecosystem. Data is really what's connecting all this stuff together and new values creating through that. And what you're seeing here is maybe uh, these really complex interactions that exist but when you can really discern the structure, you identify clusters and key players uh, as well as patterns that might uh, happen. When you combine that now with prediction, you want to understand, okay, who is forming a relationship with whom and what's going to happen next. That's really where this network visualization will become even more powerful. Another example that I want to give is uh, about understanding sequences. So time matters. Nothing is static. Everything that we do is going to be dynamic and it's going to be evolving. And some of the work that we've looked at from large companies to startups looked at sequencing of activities. In this particular example I'm showing here is what do large established companies on the S&P 500 do over time and then can we help decision makers predict what the most likely next thing they would be doing. Okay? And so in this case you're seeing a depiction of alliances that have been curated from publicly available data sets and you see licensing and manufacturing and R&D and this little uh, diagram at the very bottom predicts the next steps and it's really some fascinating work that has led into the startup world as well is what are some of the successful activities that equate to uh, acquisitions and successful exits and so on. So these are two examples, in fact if you're interested in them, uh, my PhD students in the back uh, 
Arjun Srinivasan, Tim Major, and Terence Law will be happy to demo those. And we have a series of these tools. Now, Scott has asked me, okay, this is where we are right now, but what does that mean moving down the line? So I'm gonna really conclude with this one slide here. And I think the very important thing here to consider is that we are very good at probably doing what is analysis. Although we're getting, we, we still have some opportunities of describing existing systems that we're interested in much better. So whether that's organizations or supply chains and so on. Um, and then we're getting better at it because more data is available, but we have to think about how to actually process lots of different data sets. The what if, we're really not as good as yet. It's, it's, it's immature, it's probably becoming better, we're improving at it. And what we were doing there is combining uh, standard visualization techniques with more forward-looking techniques like simulation uh, and scenario modeling. Now what we're really the worst at is at what next, and I think that's what we really want to drive at, is how can we now help decision makers understand what they should be doing uh, in the next phase. So with that, and I heard something ring, I'll leave it for the next speaker. Thank you. All right, so Carl Bedenfeld is a true Renaissance man, enjoying woodworking and boating, and with his principal hobby being music, uh, guitar, electric bass, and upright bass. Um, but to fund his picking and grin, he's a member of the AT&T Foundry team in the Atlanta Ecosystem and Innovation Group. Carl has joined Bell South in 1986 and has ridden the merger and acquisition train by serving in a variety of skunk work projects, from IPTV to video analysis. But don't let the down-home folksy demeanor fool you. Carl is whip smart, having earned a Bachelor of Science in Physics and a Master of Science in Information and Computer Science, both from Georgia Tech. He's hosted a, he hosted a weekly internal innovation session for about 13 years and holds multiple patents in the telecommunication field. So with that introduction, Carl is now ready to share his fast forward talk and boldly predict the future. So welcome to the stage. So uh, when, Scott, when Scott threw this opportunity out, I, uh, I decided I would step up. We work on a lot of different things in the foundry, but the thing that was really on our mind most recently and the thing that I decided I would speak to is a project that Mike Zadig and Jonathan Davis, who are around here somewhere, have been doing called Cell Site Health Check. Now, clearly the demand for mobile data is growing, and that means more cell sites. I don't know if you guys noticed when you came in, there was a bucket truck at the entrance right here. That's a company called Crown Castle, between Crown Castle and uh, American Tower, they own all the cell towers. And then we, the company who does the, uh, the radios, we're in charge of the, the gear that's inside. So our technicians have to visit those sites to do repairs, to do adjustments and things like that. So more cell sites means more tech visits. And uh, it, it has grown so fast. I mean, the, the number of cell sites is in the order of I think the internet said that we have 50,000 cell sites, and the internet's usually pretty close. They're actually undershot it there. But uh, we're growing at the, at the rate, again, according to the internet, of about 5,000 a year. So uh, you can see the, the curve going up there. We need more efficiency, and we need ways to help technicians do, uh, do that more easy. And so, uh, so Jonathan and, and Mike were asked to figure out a way to make this more efficient. 
Uh, what was happening in the past was that the technicians would actually have to go to the site to find the health of the site, and then they would try to do some repair. They would, a lot of times they'd have to make multiple trips, and then when they, when they got back home, they would find out, well, that almost worked. And so what they've done is they've managed to pull in all this cell site information and, uh, and put it in a dashboard and the dashboard is sort of customized by the user who is, who is accessing the data. It's one of the things, one of the innovations that they threw in there was as the, the user goes through a series of events, we can sort of predict where they're going to go next and make their interface easier. Uh, so they can tell you all the details about this kind of stuff and, uh, and how it works and, and what other innovations they had. But uh, the thing that struck me is that this has nothing to do with people. Most of the data that's monetized today, whether you realize it or not, has to do with you, your data, your personal stuff. And we're sort of fortunate because we, we're very concerned about personal data within, uh, within AT&T. We have a category called SPI. You're probably familiar with that term, sensitive personal information. And we are warned constantly. Our emails are checked constantly to make sure we're not sharing that. But not everybody is as careful with your personal data. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the European Union has a commission that has issued some guidelines or requirements, if you will, for managing personal data. And they've stalled off implementing them, but in just a few weeks, they're going to make these mandatory. And large companies with names like Google and things like that are all of a sudden having to pay billion dollar fines, billion with a B, for their failure to meet these requirements. And these requirements are things like uh, you as the consumer need to understand what data is being collected of yours, what it's being used for, and the name of somebody in the company that's collecting it that you can actually contact. That's in the requirements. And, uh, and when you look at the uh, processing that Rule was talking about earlier and the complexity of that, that's going to be quite a challenge to be able to communicate that to individual users. So my prediction is that we as humans are going to get more involved with our own data, a better understanding of where our data is going and, and how to manage that data in such a way that, that we will actually gain benefit, not just conveying that benefit financially to uh, large companies who are really good at taking advantage of us right now. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Time to spare even. That's great. All right, we'll get on into our, our final fast forward talk. So Amir Goriawala is a data scientist with Honeywell working on data security for connected cars. He's proven assault in preparing structured, unstructured, and semi-structured data for analysis. And rumor has it he scraped more data than the Surgeon General recommends in an entire lifetime as a graduate research assistant. <laughs> Having earned his Bachelor of Engineering at Mumbai University and Master's in data, data Informatics from the University of Southern California, he interned uh, at a startup uh, as a data scientist uh, before joining Honeywell. Uh, and plus, he's volunteered for German Shepherd Rescue Center per his LinkedIn profile. So he might, if you like Teutonic uh, canines, talk to him afterward about that. Uh, but Amir is ready to share his fast forward talk and boldly predict the future. So come on up, Amir, and give him welcome to the stage. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here and represent Honeywell today. So let's get down to it. My bold prediction for the next five to seven years is humanoid personal assistance. 
A lot of advancements in data technologies today has let us train increasingly complex neural networks that have helped us build intelligent systems that help humans assist in different tasks. So they can play games, they're being able to learn motor skills, and now they can drive autonomous vehicles as the next best thing in auto automotive industry, and even fly drones. So now we are seeing a rise in smart speakers and virtual assistants. Ever since Siri was first introduced, we've come a long way from you know, just returning search results to actually being able to order a pizza or call an Uber. Uh, in 2017 alone, you know, 36 million people engaged with a smart speaker. It was Alexa, Cortana, or Siri, or Google Home. But these digital assistants, they can understand us well, but they don't get the context behind it. There's still a long way to go before they can be used for the whole wide range of human tasks that we have. Playing music or scheduling an appointment will only go so far before we say, what next? What next is going to happen now? Now this is getting old. So the way we think about humans and computers interacting is going to change radically over the next five to seven years. Robots right now are extremely effective in industry environments, so that's a structured environment for them. Uh, and they, it's easy to train them for that environment because it scales that large. But for them to be effective in unstructured environments like our homes and offices, they'll have to be much more intelligent and they'll have to be able to do many more different things. So, Right now, what we see in autonomous robots are where we have large amounts of data already available. There are startups that go out, label data all the time, and make this available. So this is kind of the low-hanging fruit. But what happens when we have to scale it to random scenarios, like helping you load the dishwasher or watering your plants? That's, that's where we have transfer learning come in. Transfer learning is, it's not a new concept, it's pretty old, but now we have the computing power to be able to do that. Transfer learning will let you train robots in simulation and transfer that knowledge to the robot. Different robots could then combine the knowledge that they have learned and they don't have to start from a blank slate every time. This minimizes the cost of learning new tasks and build upon the knowledge from the old robot. So every time you get a new robot, he'll have what, he ha what the previous robot learned. It's sort of like getting a new phone now at this point. And transfer learning is going to bring in this era of humanoid personal assistance and that will have motor skills and be able to interact with a wide range of physical objects. So transfer learning has a lot of research happening in it right now. There's ways of how to represent knowledge, what you've learned and how we transfer it. There is simulated to real robot transfer, how to transfer what you've learned in a simulated environment to the robot actually. Cross domain transfer where you apply from different domains to you know, uh, the knowledge learned. And uh, all this helps in lifelong learning for the robot and long-term autonomy. And even, even human to robot skill transfer. So you could show the robot how to hold something or how to cut a vegetable or you know, pull out weeds. And that's how it's going to learn from you, by you demonstrating that task. Uh, this is also going to make possible skill transfer across heterogeneous robots. So these are the humanoid robots that I could find right now. When I say humanoid, I mean something which has bipedals that can move and has arms and legs. There are a lot of home bots as well that can entertain your children or sort of serve as a home security system. Uh, but those things can't go upstairs. They can't go out on their own. And they're usually you know, pretty small, uh, maybe to be kept on your desktop or something. Even these robots that I'm showing you right now, they are probably like one foot tall, so they're all toy robots because it's really expensive to build something lifelike or even, say, uh, the height of a 10-year-old. Uh, 
and these are as advanced as HTML was at the dot-com boom. So there's a lot more to come after this. So humanoid personal assistants, the way I see them, they are going to be socially savvy, they'll have physical adeptness to hold things, and they'll have the everyday common sense to partake in our lives. And the multitude of IoT devices that you'll have in your home, not just from smart lights or smart speakers, those devices as well are going to constantly feed them knowledge and help them navigate around the environments. So one robot would, you know, would be able to do multiple different things. It'll be able to sense dialogue, emotion, context. It could handle much more complex queries, uh, be a companion or be your surveillance system. It could track what you eat, be a personal fitness coach, and even do menial tasks like what are your plans or load the dishwasher and give you massages. So that's my future that I want to live in. Thank you. All right, now that you guys got all that off your chest, oh, whew. All right, let's uh, get into the roundtable section here. Uh, so we've, we've heard the, the what ifs looking at patterns, we heard the what about the personal data, and now we have uh, humanoid robots. Um, I'm gonna go to Raul, our first uh, folks. What if, what if the personal data becomes such a problem that people aren't comfortable with humanoid robots? You don't have to go with that way. Just, but what, what if, what if, what if, People's comfort level with knowing all of their data is there is going to create uh, a significant consumer pushback. What happens? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, we already talked about information overload a little bit here. And maybe there's another step there beyond information overload, which is uh, how comfortable are we with knowing everything that we know? There's always unintended consequences we have to think about uh, with all this data. So um, I think. A critical part that I think would have to happen is that we have mechanisms in place that allows us to expose all the data that's available and then allows us also to use it in a way that would be valuable to the to the end user. Um, I'm not sure that I'm answering your question exactly, but I think that the the goal we need to be in charge of our data, but also be ha we also have to have the means to control and, and manage that that data uh, volume as well. So uh, a few years ago, I had this thought about uh, those end-user licensing agreements that are so complicated, nobody ever reads them, and you have to sign a new one in order to make any progress at all. Uh, and uh, the thought was that, sorry, Google, I, I, I didn't mean it, really. Uh, the, no, the thought was that uh, we could use some forms of artificial intelligence to process those on our behalf and tell us, how is, how is this license agreement different than the one you showed me six months ago when I updated the same software? And what difference does that really make to me? And how does it compare with this other software company's license agreement, which might be covering the same sort of ground, but with a totally different set of uh, commitments? And I think that one of the things about the kind of data processing you're capable of is it would allow us to uh, analyze at a level that we couldn't as humans analyze, but it will analyze on our behalf. Now, that has to be trusted data, but that data essentially could go out to the net, sort of like, uh, what's the reputation.com that will go out and find all the bad stuff that's about you on the internet and help you figure out how to ameliorate that. Well, in the same sort of sense, every agreement you make or every piece of data that gets collected, something could be analyzing that for you and red flag if something comes up that, you know, that might cause concern for you. 
So for me, it's all about convenience, right? Google already knows what I'm looking at, where I want to travel, what images I like. Amazon knows what I want to buy. Netflix knows what, I, what type of movies I like or what TV series I like. And at this point, there's very little I'm doing to actually protect my personal data. Facebook has all that info built on me. They probably have a whole big file. Um, you know, moving into the future, I, I'm not going to be worried more about data privacy. Uh, that's something that if I'm using products from the company, I trust them to be able to manage that securely at that point. And if something frees me up from having to do menial tasks and I can go out and fish or learn the guitar, that's much more valuable for me than having to constantly worry about uh, you know, my SSN being stolen or my yeah, leaking out my grocery list. Yeah, it's kind of like thinking about artificial intelligence and asking, well, when, when's it going to come? Well, it's already been here for a while, and data has been an issue for a I mean, is, yeah. is something out there? Um, I'm curious, as you guys are listening to each other, do you have uh, questions for each other? Uh, this is your chance to, to tap into the collected knowledge of each other. Favorite colors? Anybody, what do you want to share? <laughs> Mary, you did a lot of data scraping. Uh, you got a data visualization guy next yeah. to you. What would you be asking that guy? So uh, you spoke about what if. And I'm wondering what, what questions you have right now about that space that are not being un answered. Because right now, AI is all about supervised learning. We still haven't even gone into other areas. Unsupervised learning remains untapped. And all of that is just burgeoning right now. And I think that will contribute to what if. But what's your uh, vision of that? Yeah, I think uh, I only scratched the surface, really, of what we're doing in our lab. So I think that if we really think about where data, visualization, analytics, and AI is going, I mean, it's going to impact all the all industries, all contexts. And one, one place where what if is really intriguing is in healthcare, for example. Uh, and some of the work that we're doing in healthcare is understanding you know, how our processes or how is care delivered right now, and what if we changed it? What does that actually do to the care process? What does it do to the outcome itself? And so using AI analytics and visualization together allows us to inform decision makers. Uh, but I can think of you know, 10 other contexts as well. And what if is, is to not just to provide uh, suggestions or scenarios, but also really quantify that, whether that's a good situation or, or a feasible situation as well. Are, are you guys doing, uh, doing work on uh, using virtual reality to uh, analyze data? It seems like the ability to fly through your data and to recognize hot spots and critical areas and fences and all that kind of thing would be a really cool way to depict that. Yeah, you know what? We have uh, some really strong VR and AR faculty members. Um, and we've explored that as well of how, how would it be to, to actually uh, explore the data space in, in a more realistic manner. Uh, we found that there are some real constraints in doing that, uh, both from a representation and from an ex experience perspective. But uh, we are seeing that in for, for some real environments to have augmented reality overlaid. So my colleague, Mary Beth Gandhi, for example, runs the, uh, uh, the Human Technology Frontier Initiative. Uh, and they do a lot of things of how do we actually overlay um, uh, data sets onto the environment that we're seeing, whether that's in a retail setting, in a healthcare setting, or in a manufacturing setting. So um, I think we're just, as I said, we're scratching the tip of that iceberg. Uh, but I think that there's also enormous technical challenges, but also human challenges of how to make it more tangible. Yeah. What about for the uh, young buck? I'm surprised that you're not worried about that all these companies <laughs> have your data. But maybe that's a generational difference. I, I, I think I agree. I mean, I think the large companies know a lot about what yeah. we have. Um, 
but there are some things that you might be concerned about maybe down the road that the companies know as well, right? I mean, your search patterns can reveal quite a bit about your lifestyle and everything else, and that's something I would be concerned about. But is that something, maybe is that a generational thing, or do you feel that there are controls that are gonna be put in place by these companies? So, I think I'm so deep in right now that there's no turning back at this point. <laughs> like, I've already given out so much that there's no reason I should, you know, make my life more difficult thinking about these things. You can't get off the grid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook reminds me every day of things I posted six years ago, so exactly. I, I can only imagine what the world is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, no, I definitely think that controls are going to be in place for much more stri stricter data privacy. Uh, you know, blunders like Equifax being hacked, uh, that's a big, you know, it gives out as the example and it shows, you know, how it could lead to downfall. So I'm pretty sure Facebook doesn't want to be replaced, how it replaced Orkut or MySpace in that category. So they're going to do everything in that power to avoid this kind of negative backlash if they lose a million, billion users' data. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was at a talk, uh, cybersecurity talk, a former guy from Georgia Tech now at LSU, he, and he's talking about synthetic data identity theft. So the idea is with Anthem data out there, with uh, Equifax data out there, with the federal government employee database out there, there, there's gonna be an emerging trend of the synthetic people that are created from your healthcare data, your financial data, and your uh, human records, HR records, and that becomes a synthetic person that then has an identity theft stolen from them. So chew on that. I'm gonna turn to the audience. We have someone with a burning question for our panel here. We have room for one or two. I'm gonna walk up to somebody uh, that looks like they want a question, and here she is. <laughs> so let, let's, let's, who are you and what you have? Uh, Kit Johnson, I'm with PrivOps, and we were talking about the data privacy laws, like GDPR coming out. Yes. Do you see that as a hindrance or as an opportunity for companies to build trust and use their data more responsibly? I'm gonna look at it as an opportunity. Yeah, uh, it certainly will, will hinder people who have been, you know, it's, it's like before roads were invented, you could drive your horse or your car anywhere. You, it didn't matter. Uh, but eventually you'd start running into people or things. And, and once roads were invented and lines were painted and traffic signals were put up, it actually enables better traffic flow, even though it seems like a restriction. So I'm sort of hoping that that's the case with, with the, the data space. Thanks. Anything else, Ed? No, I, I, it's okay I, to say no. No, no, no. Okay. But I, I agree with him. Hard pass, <laughs> soft pass. Amir? No? All right. I'm sitting with John Avery. Uh, he's brought his uh, HoloLens. If you want to play with it, Panasonic Automotive, uh, it is quite trippy. So, John, what do you have here? Just curious, uh, intrigued about the idea of the transfer learning for the robotics world and uh, wondering how mature that that field is? Is there, are you imagining there's some way that you could imagine transferring complex contextual knowledge sort of in a generic way? Is there standards for that or how does that work? So there are no standards for that right now and transfer learning has been decades old, as old as neural networks are at this point, but they have been pretty advanced that they could have a single arm robot be able to stack blocks right now in a stimulated environment and then it could transfer to that robot to learn. And transfer learning in computer vision is really important. So right now when you have x-rays, you have neural networks that can read x-rays and they have a better diagnosis than even doctors do. So it's difficult to have good label data for x-rays. But what you have is tons of cat pictures on the internet. 
It's cheap to train a neural network on the cat pictures. You replace the last few layers in that neural network to then be able to output, uh, you know, if there's a tumor in that X-ray or not. And that's where transfer learning is really being applied right now, where there's not enough label data available, or it's very expensive to get label data out. So. Cat images. That's what the purpose of that and cats on exactly. the internet is to teach the robots <laughs> social learning. It makes me think of like when you said shared learning or transferred learning, I was thinking like there's two things that the human uh, species has done is create digital code, but also the social codes, you know, teaching our children, teaching the people around us. Did you see, will, will that include uh, like generational learning that uh, will accumulate over time with these ro uh, robotics? So, yeah. Will, will, I, will a mother robot pass it down to her grandchild? <laughs> yes. Ideally, that is because over the life of that robot, it has learned a wide range of scenarios. If I have shown the mother, mother robot how to charge my laptop, I want the new robot to be able to know how to plug it in or connect that to the machine to charge it in. So I definitely expect knowledge transfer to take place. Otherwise, it's no point. It's going to be too expensive to train the robot from scratch. Hmm. Yeah. Any final thoughts from you guys before we close? Uh, yeah. Things I, you haven't gotten out I, yet. I have one from... Uh, from Tim O'Reilly via his, uh, his book WTF, which some of you may have heard of and I recommend highly. Uh, and his, part of his discussion is about robots taking over our jobs. And that's a big concern. It's a legitimate concern. But uh, what he has envisioned is that most technology enhances the way people are able to work rather than replaces the way people are able to work. And uh, he, he sees that a, an intelligence and a robotic assistant or collaboration with humans is really a more likely and a more useful scenario. I do have one, one piece probably as well, and because I'm a professor at a, at a university, I have to talk about education a little bit, which is I think uh, you're absolutely right. I think it will enhance work and it will maybe hopefully do it in a positive manner, but we also have to think about how do we train and educate the next generation of folks. And I think the, the goal here is that we have to change the way we, uh, what material we teach, how we teach it, but then also engage with industry a lot because the, the real problems that we see now are coming from industry, from real practical problems. They're not theoretical, they're incredibly practical. And so uh, the student experience needs to be along with industry and academia in this space of analytics and AI. So one thing that, one quote that has stuck with me is technology is neither good nor bad, it's neutral. It's how it affects people, that's how they perceive it. And definitely AI is going to take away a lot of jobs, but that, that's what happened when you had the Industrial Revolution as well. Everything was made by hand before. And then you had the Industrial Revolution pumping out things like thousands of, uh, in one hour. But now we still value handicrafts if we come across a few, and that still holds value. Of course, it's a smaller percentage, but it still holds value. And I do agree that you know humans and robots would be working together, and the more menial tasks, something that can be programmed will be done by the robot and freeing us up. Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of the hot seat uh, this episode. I uh, want to thank our strategic partners, uh, University Financing Foundation, Gateway Development Services, ATDC, SQ5, Metro Atlanta Chamber, Choose ATL, uh, and Honeywell. I also want to thank you to Georgia Centers of Innovation, who's uh, the title sponsor of this show, uh, as well as Honeywell uh, for all of the support here today and being on the panel. Um, our three uh, presenters, uh, 
Raul and uh, Carl and Amir, you guys did a fabulous job. All of the exhibitors who will be uh, here to talk, if you want to keep talking to the speakers and to the exhibitors, uh, and you, the audience. So if you like what you're hearing, be sure to tell uh, your friends uh, about uh, the Ted Square ATL podcast channel on iTunes uh, or SoundCloud, and make sure to leave a review. We always love those. If you want to learn more about the heart of Atlanta sex scene, check out techsquareatl.com. So until you see a silhouette of a chair in the sky again, this has been the Hot Seat Podcast. Thank you.